You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Welcome to uh, City Edge Sunday morning, the 31st of May, the last day of autumn, about to launch into winter tomorrow. Isn't that exciting? Um, in recent weeks, you'll recall that uh, we've been looking at the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. It's the deepest and the most profound discussion he has had yet with anyone. And he reveals things to this outcast woman that he hasn't revealed to anyone else so far in his ministry. Last week, we considered what he meant by worship, true worship, the type of worship that the Father is seeking. My conclusion was that the pattern of worship that the Bible reveals actually has very little to do with singing. That's not to say that singing is excluded from worship, but only to say that worship at its heart is actually something different to singing. Rather, worship is both an act and an attitude that indicates the humility of the worshipper and the worth of the one being worshipped. The word worship means to ascribe worth or value to someone or something. And in the Bible, worship is offered up by bowing down and honouring the person, or in some cases, by bowing down and honouring the object. In fact, the first instance we see of worship involving singing is a disturbing one. It's the incident where Moses goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments And while he's gone, Aaron makes a golden calf at the insistence of the people. When Moses returns, the people are singing and dancing around this statue and worshipping it. God was not impressed, to put it mildly. So Moses recruited the priest to go through the camp with a sword, killing son and brother for their sin. 3,000 died by the sword that day. And the Lord put his seal on it by following up with a plague as a further punishment for their sin. So don't tell me it doesn't matter what you worship or how you worship. The whole book of Leviticus is written to give very explicit instructions about how to approach and worship this holy God. Do you imagine that this God, the one who never changes, who is the same yesterday, today and forever, has now suddenly decided that he doesn't care how you approach him? This story in Exodus alone should make you careful about how you approach this God you claim to worship as well. And it shows us how frighteningly easy it is to be led astray to worship something, anything in place of the living God, and how easy it is to justify what we're doing. Brothers and sisters, we are not immune to this temptation. There's an interesting little note in that story in Exodus that I think might be relevant to our topic today. When Moses came back down the mountain, it tells us in Exodus 32.25 that he saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them loose, break loose, to the derision of their enemies. These same enemies had only weeks before been in terror of the Lord and the people because of the mighty works that God had done in Egypt and in rescuing them through the Red Sea. And in fact, they were still in terror 40 years later when the Israelites were looking to attack Jericho. So 
How extreme must their behaviour and their worship have been that these enemies, all of whom I'd remind you worshipped idols and statues too, but who only recently were in abject terror of the Israelites, were now mocking them and laughing at them with contempt and derision. It seems even their enemies recognised the hypocrisy of claiming to follow a holy God then at the first chance abandoning all self sense of self-control. What must the enemies be thinking about God's holy, chosen, set-apart people? Fools and smug hypocrites, they claim to be better than us and then they behave with such debauchery that even we would be embarrassed. Now, we don't expect the enemies of the church to understand or even approve of what we do in worship. But what disturbs me is that I've witnessed behaviour in the church that even our enemies would be embarrassed to do. And it's all done in the name of worshipping God. True worshippers, the Father is seeking, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. When Jesus said we are to worship in spirit and truth, that must mean something, surely. It can't just be Jesus' way of making conversation as if he was saying, nice day today, isn't it? So what does he mean then? Now, I pushed pretty hard last week to make the point that singing is not worship. I don't want you to get the idea that I'm opposed to singing as part of our worship. I'm certainly not. I love to join with others to lift up my voice, as bad as my voice may be, to sing praises to my Saviour. And I appreciate that we're able to do that this morning with Connor leading us. But I did want to make the point that worship is so much more than singing. In fact, singing in church on Sunday morning should be only a small part of our worship. Worship should be part of everything we do, whether work or family relationships or shopping or holidays, and yes, even church. So it's probably no surprise that many Christians don't think about their everyday life being an act of worship. Very few of us have been taught that. But in the area of musical worship in churches, there often seems, seems to be any freedom from restraint, just like the Israelites dancing around the golden calf. If it feels good, do it. So much of what I say today will be directed to that concern. Now, this is important because not everything that we think is worship may actually be worship. Listen to this warning from Amos chapter 5. And this is the Lord speaking. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Now that's not the only passage like this in the Bible. But this one alone should be sufficient warning that we need to be careful and thoughtful in our approach to this holy God. We run the risk of not only dishonouring God, with an approach that is too casual or too flippant, but we won't run the risk that God will actually reject our worship. Now, Hebrews 
chapter 9 is placed in the middle of a discussion about regulations for acceptable worship in Old Testament times. The whole passage talks about how careful the priest must be in preparing to approach God. In verse 1 it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. I'm not sure how you read that, but it seems to me to be suggesting that if the first, the incomplete covenant had regulations for worship, then the second, the greater and more perfect covenant will require no less. Certainly it suggests that the greater covenant doesn't abandon regulations for worship. Hebrews 12.28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There are a frightening number of passages in the Bible that talk about God rejecting the worship his people offer up and even despising their attempts at worship. Romans 9.4 tells us that they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. To them belongs the worship and the promises. Now, if worship was given to the Jews, then it's reasonable to, to assume that we can learn something from how they were instructed to worship. And their worship was much less about singing and much more about reverence and humility before God. The general thrust of my message last week was that worship is much more than singing. Rather, it's a lifestyle of humility before our God and Father, acknowledging his wisdom and might, his superiority in every area of our lives, even in areas that confuse us, disturb us, don't make sense to us, and even sometimes causes great pain. There's an American philosopher by, the, philosopher by the name of William James who said, in America, and I think this applies to a large degree in a lot of Western Christianity, but in America, God isn't worshipped, he is used. God has become a product. Hey, have I got a great product for you? And if you're not completely satisfied, simply return the unused portion for a full refund. And people do. When things go south, when marriages break down, when they lose a job or get cancer, they walk out on it because they were sold a product. It would appear that the Israelites suffered from much the same problem back in the book of Exodus. They so, so quickly turned away from God for their own desires. Now these Israelites, you would remember, had seen firsthand the miraculous plagues that God had visited throughout Egypt. They had seen but been spared the slaughter of the firstborn sons. They had finally been, permission, been given permission to go away to worship God and had been given an abundance of gold and silver and precious jewels poured out on them by their oppressors. They'd seen the Red Sea open up miraculously before them so they could cross over on dry land, and then they watched as it crashed back down on their pursuers. They'd been led through the wilderness by a highly visible cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They'd received enough water out of a rock to quench the thirst of millions of people 
and all their livestock. They've been fed daily by manna from heaven. But almost as soon as Moses leaves them to go up to the mountain, they talk Aaron into making a statue of a golden calf for them to worship. And they danced and sang with abandon around this idol. Their recent history had been one miraculous event after another. But even that wasn't enough to convince them that they should be fully devoted to God. This story should be a warning to us. Firstly, about how easy it is to turn away from God to our own desires and wants, to turn from truth to falsehood and deception. And secondly, how little miracles actually tell us about the source of those miracles. Miracles don't necessarily prove the existence or the presence or the anointing of God. Pharaoh's magicians copied almost every miracle that Moses performed. You would remember Jesus' warning about the false prophets and how we should test them, not by their miracles, but by their fruit. And he said in Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus said that even people who are not Christians can perform miracles. So we need something more reliable, something much more reliable the mere signs and wonders to hang our faith on. Now, don't jump to the conclusion either that I'm one who thinks that miracles have ceased. I've experienced some personally. I've been God's instrument to bring miracles to others. I've witnessed miracles happening. But, and it's a big but, miracles don't necessarily prove anything about God or godliness. Now, maybe... That's enough of the warnings. Maybe we should get back now to what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. If you think back for a moment to John chapter 3, the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, Jesus told him that unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 5, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, there's some disagreement between scholars on this point, but it seems pretty clear to me that Jesus is distinguishing here between the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit specifically, and Spirit, the non-physical aspect of humans or of divine beings. The Holy Spirit does his divine work in a person's spirit. Then when we come to John chapter 4, Jesus tells the woman that true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. Now, some read this as worshipping in the Holy Spirit. So they invite the Holy Spirit to come and they sing songs about come Holy Spirit. And whatever happens after that, well, it must be the Holy Spirit who is doing it. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. And some of the evidence for that, in my opinion, is some of the behaviour that goes on 
in church meetings. And on a side note, have you ever wondered why we would invite the omnipresent Holy Spirit to come? Wasn't he here already before we arrived? Rather, what Jesus is telling us here from our, is that our worship must come from the heart, from our inner being, from our own spirit. Our worship must be sincere. It's no use to just go through the motions. If it's not stirred by a heart that loves God, treasures his grace towards us, desires to serve him, and humbles itself before his majesty, it's not worship. At least it's not worship of the true and living God. It's not worship that the living God will accept. Jesus said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honours me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Emotion and enthusiasm don't really tell you very much about worship and the presence or otherwise of the Holy Spirit. Mel and I went to a couple of rock concerts in the last year or so. There's Cat Stevens and Alice Cooper, both artists that we grew up loving and singing their songs. And uh, in those concerts, there was a buzz in the room. There were 15,000 around about people in each concert all together in one place, singing and clapping and jumping and dancing. And they were great concerts. We enjoyed them immensely. We got into it as well, singing at the top of our voices. But not one of the songs was remotely Christian. But yet the emotion and the enthusiasm generated was very similar to something you'd experience at a large Christian worship event. Whatever worship may have been happening at these rock concerts, it certainly wasn't worship of God. And at this point is where I believe that a lot of so-called worship in the modern church is not worship at all, but hype and manipulation sometimes and emotionalism. I've been in far too many Christian meetings where anything goes, people barking like dogs, writhing on the floor like snakes, falling down on command, laughing uncontrollably. Anything, any behaviour, no matter how bizarre, is accepted and celebrated as evidence of the approving presence of the Holy Spirit and the anointing of the leader. If there's a buzz in the room, if there's heightened emotions and singing and clapping and jumping and dancing, God must be present, surely. But I'd ask, where is the conformity to scripture, to truth? Does it even matter? Now, the other thing that Jesus said is that true worshippers will worship in truth, not just in spirit and not in spirit or truth, but spirit and truth. Our worship must be shaped by and conformed to the truth of scripture. What did Jesus himself say about truth? In John's gospel alone, he had this to say. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. (coughs) Excuse me. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, 
who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speaks, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now think about that for a moment. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, if the goings-on in a Christian meeting contradict scripture, in what way can we say that the Holy Spirit is present and guiding the events of the meeting? When he comes, he will guide you into truth, not into error, not into deception. Now, let's think about this a bit further. Some of the manifestations I've witnessed at these meetings seem to be out of control of the person manifesting. One of the fruits of the Spirit, you'd recall, is self-control. So at any time, a Christian should be able to be, bring themselves un, back under control. Paul challenged the Corinthian church, which was proud of its freedom in worship, that God is not a God of confusion or disorder, but of peace. And even prophets are not compelled to prophesy just because they feel moved by the Spirit. Paul said in the previous verse to that one, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Therefore, I think it is wise to treat any bizarre manifestation with scepticism rather than celebration. I've seen people manifesting all sorts of strange things in church meetings. Mel and I were in a meeting once where a woman was bent over almost double backwards and the leaders were celebrating the way the Holy Spirit was manifesting himself in her. But Mel and I wanted to cast out the demon that we believe was manifesting in her. I see nowhere in scripture where people barked like dogs or writhed like snakes in the presence of God. Mostly, when God turned up to confront them, they fell down as though dead. The closest we get is when the man brought his son to Jesus because a demon had been making his son convulse and throwing him into the fire. When Jesus confronted the demon, it convulsed the boy and then it came out of him. The boy was left clean and healed. No one celebrated the manifestations. They only celebrated the complete healing of the boy and the end of the manifestations. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus said. Your word is truth. And what's the only reliable source of truth that we have? The Bible. If we can see good examples in the Bible, we should use them for guidance and inspiration and direction. But if they're absent, there should at the very least be red flags going up for us. Now, I was going to, at this point, while I was talking, beginning to talk about the Bible and truth, go off on a bit of a tangent about the so-called Passion Translation. Um, I don't think I will. I'm happy to talk to people about that afterwards. But what I will say emphatically is if you're using a Passion Translation, burn it. And if there's any pastors or church leaders listening to this that are using it in their, uh, their preaching or their meetings, then they should be ashamed of themselves and they should burn it, repent, and tell their people to stop using it as well. That's enough 
of my diversion. I'm happy to talk further about it later. Back to worshipping in spirit and in truth. As I said, we don't choose to worship in spirit or truth, but in spirit and truth. Some fall into the error of worshipping in the spirit only, by which they usually mean worshipping in the Holy Spirit. Others reject that entirely and determine to worship in truth only, by which they usually mean they reject any show of emotion not as not from God. These people often even reject things like clapping and lifting your hands in worship. For some, any emotional expression in worship is offensive and ungodly. I remember visiting a church in Adelaide many years ago. We only sang old hymns during the service, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But I asked the pastor on the way out of the door if they ever sang any of the more modern, at that time, more modern scripture in song choruses. His response was almost caustic. We don't worship the Holy Spirit here, he said. It struck me as a strange response. Why did he assume that choruses were so bad? In those days, most of those choruses were basically the Bible text put to music. And if the Holy Spirit is God, is he not also worthy of worship? I suspect I know what he means by it, though. He was concerned about the excesses of the Pentecostal movement, which was pretty big at the time and remains pretty big today, I've got to say. And he was probably right to be concerned about excesses. Excesses and extremes are usually one truth taken so far that it becomes error. And it becomes error by ignoring all the other truths that Scripture reveals about God and man and sin and salvation. Now, that doesn't mean we should reject what is good about worship that uh, differs from the way we understand it. But on this subject, Sam Storms has said, our worship must be rooted in and tethered to the realities of biblical revelation. God forbid that we should ever sing heresy. Worship is not meant to be formed by what feels good, but by the light of what's true. Genuine, Christ-exalting worship must never be mindless or based in ignorance. It must be doctrinally grounded and focused on the truth of all we know of our great triune God. To worship inconsistently with what is revealed to us in Scripture ultimately degenerates into idolatry. And he goes on to say that worship that doesn't engage and inflame your emotions and affections is, worth, is worthless. Which is exactly what Jesus was saying when he warned the Pharisees about honouring God with their lips when their hearts were far from him. John Piper concurs, he says, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. There certainly seem to be many songs that have something special about them that seem to have 
some sort of anointing on them. There's some songs that endure the test of time and always seem to stir us to worship when we sing them, no matter how old they are. Think of a great, Amazing Grace. It still stirs hearts nearly 250 years after it was written. Or How Great Thou Art, which was written nearly 140 years ago. Forty odd years ago, we were singing I Exalt Thee, a song that seems to be just as anointed today as it was back then. And in more recent days, we've been singing Revelation Song and What a Beautiful Name. If these songs don't stir your heart to awe and wonder and worship of our God, you must have a heart of stone. But then there are others that seemed wonderful at the time, but don't seem to have stood the test of time. And they don't seem to stir us much anymore. Does anyone remember, I walk by faith, each step by faith? Or surely Aussies would remember the great south land of the Holy Spirit. Awesome song at the time. One many Aussie Christians wish could be our national anthem. But doesn't seem to have the power today that it had back in the 90s. Why not? I have a theory that is more than just a catchy tune that makes a song endure. It's the truth that the song teaches and the focus it puts on Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. He will not make up a different truth. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, not himself. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, I wouldn't build a doctrine around it, but it's my belief that the more we focus on Jesus Christ, the more, more the Holy Spirit is present, so to speak. For his job is not to draw attention to himself, but to point people to Jesus Christ. So it's almost like if we're going to glorify Jesus Christ in song, the Holy Spirit says, you're not going to do that without me. And if you have the privilege of leading people in song, I suggest you keep this in mind. The spirit of truth is only interested in teaching us truth. So it's important that we vet our songs to make sure that they teach truth accurately and point to Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Now, at the end of the day, the truth of God's word and his promises and his saving grace should stir us to some sort of heartfelt response. It may stir us to sing and dance and lift our hands. It may cause us to kneel in humble reverence and tears, but it should never leave us unmoved. We are to worship in spirit and in truth. That means that our worship must be heartfelt. It must bubble up out of that inner spring of living water that Jesus puts inside us when we're born again. And it must be founded on the truths of scripture, founded on the character and the attributes and the person of God. It must be founded on his grace and his mercy, on his love and his justice, on his mighty power 
and his tender care. These principles apply to all of our worship, not just when we're singing. Whether we worship by doing our jobs well and unto the Lord, or whether we worship in our relationships or when we travel, we can worship in spirit and truth by joyfully conforming to scripture in everything we do. We should, we must be discerning about what we sing, about what we believe, about how we behave, and especially about how we approach this holy God. For the Father is seeking true worshippers, those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may our worship of you always be in spirit and truth. We ask that you teach us how to be true worshippers, and we ask that you enable us to worship you truly every day of our life and in everything we do. We ask, Lord, that our worship will never be empty words, nor that our hearts would ever be far from you. May our worship bubble up from the depths of our soul. Awaken us, Lord, to the joy of worshipping you in all your glory and your beauty. Teach us, Holy Spirit, to keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ at all times. And teach us to be wise and discerning and even careful about how we come before you. May all of our lives bring you honour and glory and be a delight to you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, our Lord, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.